Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Along with the issue of the role of women, there, I think, is in this passage that we're about to read, really the question of how we are to arrive at truth. You know, sometimes you hear, we're a people of the book, but actually that's not true of Christians. That was true of the Jews. For the Jews, the book was definitive of who they were. The objection, you know, that, oh, we're a people of the book, maybe people say, well, there's no difference. And of course, uh, I think that the difference can be accentuated. That is, that we're people of the Lord, we're followers of Christ. But what we've learned from Paul in the very mode of his writing letters is that we have been given an opportunity then to engage in in, uh, what he's doing. They're not letters written on stone. They're not commands handed down from God. He's arguing. He's discussing. He's saying, you come and you join the discussion. And so the word of God is what? It's the person of Christ. And Christ is the one who is to take up residence in our lives It's Christ that is inscribed, you know, in our heart. And certainly it's connected. Uh, It's it's a personal word. It's propositional, but ultimately it's personal. It's who he is. And so Paul differentiates, even in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he differentiates between scriptures which kill. He says the letter kills, and he's actually referring to the Ten Commandments. The Spirit gives life. That's the difference, right? And the authority and diversity of the canon of Scripture does not function. The the Bible does not function for us like the Ten Commandments function for the Jews. The law of Christ is love, and this becomes our interpretive guide. There are tensions in Scripture, and there are tensions in the interpretation of Scripture, and we cannot ignore that. Just as someone else, you know, if I say to Dave, well, I I need to exercise, I'll hire you to go to the gym for me today. Uh, That probably wouldn't help. We can't hire somebody else to think these things out for us, and you just tell me what to do. No, the whole point of this is that it passes through our mind, that it shapes who we are. And the tension in Scripture, the way that we exercise our mind, the authority of Christ functions, is not that it bypasses who we are as human beings that bypass the human conditions, and we would not want it to. That is, we are given a scripture here that I think we're going to have to think about a little bit. And the tension, the authority works so as to include the necessity of our participation. And so let's read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. 
Now we all know that Paul just a few paragraphs above this has told women when they speak in church how they are to adorn themselves. He tells them they should probably wear a head covering for some sign. However we explain this passage, it cannot be taken as over and against the other. It's not an absolute command that overrides what Paul has already told us. And so this section, the, it concerns prophecy and the immediate context concerns the critique of prophetic speech. He says when somebody prophesies, then as a group you're to decide, is this from God or not? And it may be that in the admonition to curb speech of a certain kind, it may be that in this particular instance, the women who seek to join in the critique, maybe we don't know what the situation is. Maybe that they're uh, claiming, you know, asking inappropriate questions. Maybe the women are ganging up on a particular man. Maybe they're, they were judging the prophet against his lifestyle. They said, well, you know, you're saying all this stuff, but you don't live that way. Or maybe it was their husbands, and the word wife here, the word woman, is the same thing in the Greek. We don't know. Is it saying wives? It may be they're challenging their own husbands, which is made more plausible if you look at verse 35. If you want to learn, if you want to question, well, interrogate your husband at home. Don't interrogate him in front of the church. And so Paul is concerned for respect between husband and wife in public and at home. He's already told us in chapter 11. But also for the effect, that is, he wants the order of worship to be such that outsiders or unbelievers, when they come in, they'll find it attractive. And if women then were in some way critiquing their husbands, worship might just become a family feud. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Um, that's one resolution to suggest a local problem in the church. Now let me offer another resolution, which in fact I don't hold to, but I want to offer this to say that it's there. And that is that several ancient manuscripts place these verses outside of the location they're in and as in a kind of addendum at the end of the chapter. And at least one ancient manuscript includes markings suggesting that the scribe considered these words to be a gloss inserted into the text. Now, even having said that, if the sentences are in addition, it would have had to have occurred very early on because the extant manuscripts contain these words either at verses 33 and 36 or following verse 40. So the problem though is clear that this, this stands in a glaring contradiction to what Paul has just said in chapter 11, 2 to 16, in which he teaches that women in fact are to pray and prophesy publicly. They're to exercise their gifts. This is uh, Richard Hayes. He says all the other available evidence indicates that women played an active role and he concludes <coughs> The, the command in verse 34, 34 uh, doesn't belong. I don't agree with him. But certainly, we know that women are playing an active role in preaching and teaching in the ministry of Paul. You know, we just talked this morning in the book of Romans. Paul is having Phoebe carry his letter to Rome. And he says to the churches at Rome, now Phoebe's coming. And of course, she's probably going to be reading the letter to the churches. 
We know that Priscilla and Aquila are a, a prominent pair, and Priscilla, her name usually comes first. That she may, in fact, be the prominent pair in this evangelistic team. And Priscilla and Aquila, in fact, take the most, one of the most eloquent speakers of the age and, and take him aside and correct his theology. At the end of Romans, there's this woman, Junia, who is an apostle, an outstanding apostle, Paul says. There's Judea and Syntyche in Philippians. In other words, you just start going through that women, in fact, at the end of Romans, there are more prominent women named than there are men. And so maybe that the, the verse 34 is addressed specifically to Corinthians. There are problems even in the, you know, Paul in this passage, or it, it says there's an appeal to the law. And normally Paul doesn't appeal to the law. It's sort of uncharacteristic. And so uh, Richard Hayes says that Paul never told women to be silent in the churches. I could say it that strong because he may have in this instance. He says this, is, this order is the work of a subsequent Christian generation. That is an understanding. Richard Hayes is a very conservative theologian. But my point is that our responsibility is to recognize there are tensions and to acknowledge them and to make theologically informed judgments about how the different texts speak to our situation. There's no getting around it. We must try to discern, you know, what is the fundamental teaching? What is the theme of the New Testament teaching? And then we make decisions about these contested matters. We have to be discerning, even in our re reading of Scripture. We know this, uh, you know, in the example of slavery. Though it was widespread in the ancient world, and it was incompatible, we believe, with the New Testament's fundamental vision of the freedom and dignity of human beings, but there are many texts in Scripture, Ephesians 6, Colossians, Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, that all in some way are accommodating slavery. Accommodating, I think, is the key word, because if we take a, a book like Philemon, Paul writes to Philemon, and Onesimus is his slave who's run away, and he said, now treat Onesimus like he were, you know, my son. And so does Paul agree with slavery? Well, he doesn't agree with slavery in the church, or at least in this instance, and he's overcoming it, of course, that. And so we understand that slavery is rejected, right? As Christians, we don't believe in slavery. There are passages in Scripture that are understood as provisional adaptations of the gospel to a particular cultural setting. And so such texts should not be used normatively to perpetuate slavery in the church. We wouldn't do that. And so too here we should be guided by Paul's vision of Christian worship in which the gifts of the Spirit are given to all the members. He said this very clear, men and women alike, for the building up of the community. And Paul tells us to discern God's will together. So we must be attentive to Paul's wider vision of men and women as full partners in the work of the ministry. Now, there is a prayer that the Jews used to pray. Thank God that he has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And at this point in the synagogue, the, the women would answer back, Thank you, God, that you have made me according to your will. 
Paul, I think in Galatians, specifically is taking up this prayer. Overturning this understanding when he implies, I think this prayer is forbidden in the Christian congregation. Galatians 3.28, I think that's what he's actually referencing. It is precisely the notion of some set cultural order, a law of nature. Oh, this is just the way things are. This is the way we do it here. We just happen to have slaves. Or we just happen to mistreat. Or, you know, well, no, Paul is precisely overturning that sort of thing. And that overturning, that kind of revolutionary understanding is equated with salvation. And so the male-female nature of the image, this is key to who we are. That's what Paul has said. He's just said this in 1 Corinthians 11. But it's necessarily plural. The man is through the woman, the woman is through the man, and the two are one in the Lord. They're interdependent in origin and in you know, relational integrity. And that is the image bearing that Paul, you know, I think he's referring back to Genesis, that man has been created as two. That is, we bear the image as a plurality of persons with the world, with other people, with God, you know, that we are not isolated individuals. We don't bear the image in that way. And so we might say that the fall of humankind, you know, what happens when Adam and Eve fall? Well, they immediately turn on one another, right? Oh, she did it. No, he did it. Well, he, the snake did it. Oh, God, it's actually your fault. They just, they just don't like anybody after that. That there is alienation and that alienation sets in in the male-female relationship. Uh, or maybe just the capacity for relationship. And the New Testament brings this out most sharply. In that salvation and final redemption are pictured in terms of marriage, in terms of restored, gendered relation. The church is pictured, pictured as the bride and Christ as the groom. The kingdom is celebrated as a marriage feast. And Paul pictures the most abiding ministry, male-female unity. You know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. But it's either the vehicle for an analogy or the unity between Christ and the church is what we, in some way we understand in our maleness and femaleness, our relationships and attitudes then about maleness and females, this is not secondary. This is primary to our understanding of Christianity. The manner in which we treat one another, the way in which we regard one another is at the heart of the Christian faith. This is true both here you know, in Corinthians and Romans 7. Paul depicts human failure and success in terms of gender relations. Understanding who God is, is very much connected to understanding human anthropology, understanding maleness and femaleness, and particularly understanding the Trinity, is interdependent with full realization of male-female interdependence. Paul says, you know, in Romans 7, 4, belonging to another, and also in 1 Corinthians 11, in both instances, he says it's in the Lord. And then in the Corinthian passage, we just did in chapter 11, he depicts it as the father and the son are related in the way that men and women are related. Very interesting because the way we understand who God is is the way we're going to understand who men and women are. And if we misunderstand the one, we're probably going to misunderstand the other. 
it speaks of a simultaneous realization of right relations between men and women, and that's coordinated with a fuller understanding of who God is. And so the very notion of self-identity depends upon how we relate to others, and this is how we understand who God is. And so the unity of the Godhead, you know, we, we, you almost have to go through the history of the various heresies, but those heresies get repeated you know, the son is the son subordinate to the father. Are women subordinate to men? That's a heresy. And today there are those teaching, because they want women to be subordinate to men, they say, well, actually, the son is subordinate to the father. That is, they're repeating the heresy historically in the church because they want to repeat that same misunderstanding in male-female relationships. So as with the Trinity, to say that one is not without the other is to preserve the identity, the individual identity, a male and female distinction. Certainly that's there. That's part of Paul's point. That I think that's part of what the hair length and head coverings. That there is a difference. But at the same time, positing each as internal to or interdependent with the other, just as in the Trinity. And so this means our practical and lived out comprehension of God, a unity containing difference, will be first and foremost realized in male-female relationship. And in turn, our understanding of these relationships in marriage, and as in Corinthians, will be a, a, a test of our understanding of God. How well do you understand God? This isn't a big, huge theological thing. If you mistreat people, maybe you don't understand God. How can you love God whom you have not seen when you hate your neighbor or you mistreat your neighbor or you mistreat your wife or, you know, dot, dot, dot. That the two are interconnected throughout Scripture. And so with tra traditional Trinitarian doctrine as a guide, notions of maleness and femaleness as separate principles or manifestations of a singular essence, or one subordinate to the other. All of those are heresies. See what I'm saying? That if we misunderstand God, we're going to misunderstand this relationship. So you can go back in church history. You know, Augustine uh, has a convoluted notion that the male alone contains the proper and full image of God. Now his Trinitarian formulas, I think they're okay. But they do, this is the Eastern Church's accusation against Augustine's understanding that it allows for subordination. If we take the Eastern Church, take Gregory of Nyssa's Trinitarian formulations. He's very egalitarian, but he leaves it a mystery. And also the Trinity is left a mystery. And so the mysticism of the East and the mistreatment of women, the subordination, uh, you know, the treatment of women is abysmal in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I think it reflects an inadequate understanding of who God is. So personhood as understood through Orthodox tradition surrounding the Trinity. That's what Paul has said, and he says it in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, uh, Romans 6 to 8. That is, understanding God, understanding who humans are, will give rise to difference in unity, understanding, male-female relationship, egalitarian, or something on that order. And so the question is, why hasn't this been the case? Maybe we could just say, well, people are sinful. 
And that sinfulness shows up precisely here, most strongly. Perhaps it's simply the, the case that orthodoxy, it's not that in the history of the church, people haven't had orthodox understanding of Trinity, but it, does it always produce orthopraxy? That is, does the practice always? It should, and that's what John says, that belief and practice are necessarily related. Those that practice righteousness do so because they know the righteous one. If we know who Christ is, this will be reflected in our understanding of who men and women are. And so, in all of this, Paul says, isn't the whole point of Christianity, this is what we read this morning, the transformation of the mind, the transformation of our lives. Paul tells us that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. If we're simply a people of the letter of the book, so tied to certain propositions, that we cannot recognize Jesus in one another, John says we cannot claim to have known him. If we insist on denigrating another person because of their gender, their race, their ethnic identity, then the question is, have you really known Jesus? Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.